justified terror, which paralyzes needed efforts. Hey there, this is Della Rucker, principal of the Wise Economy Workshop and author of the recent book, The Local Economy Revolution Has Arrived, What's Changed and How You Can Help. I'm delighted to share with you this interview today as part of the Accelerate Us Dispatches from the Front Lines of the Local Economy Revolution series. This one's a little bit different because I'm actually working very closely with the person I'm going to be speaking with. Kema Ahaktera is the CEO and founder of Trep House. And I've been working with Trep House as an advisor for about the last year or so. Trep House to me is amazing. It is a virtual super hub, which means that it's a collection of all of the resources that people need in order to start new businesses. And it's a a super hub that's particularly geared toward what we call new majority founders. So these are generally millennial and Gen Z. They may be black, they may be um, brown, they may be of a variety of backgrounds, but the common core is that they're coming from a background where they haven't necessarily had access to all of the resources that people who are more privileged have tended to take for, for granted. So Trep House provides mentors and coaches. There's a training program. There are network opportunities. There's a vendor network. And there is a, a collection of resources around improving a business and getting it ready to raise funds and also some resources for helping to make fundraising happen. So it's a really comprehensive solution and very little like it out there in the world. So if you're interested in this, if you enjoy the audio, my suspicion is you'll love the video. So you can find the full video of this interview on YouTube. Um, for the Della, Just look for Della Rucker and you'll find the YouTube channel. You can also find other videos there, including other interviews in the Accelerate Us series. And if you go to wiseeconomy.com, you can get a bigger picture of all of the things that the Wise Economy platform is producing and, and creating for people who are trying to take care of the places that matter to them. So you can learn more about wiseeconomy.com. You can also, if you're, if you're enjoying this content, you might also enjoy subscribing to the Substack, which is wiseeconomy.substack.com. That produces a, a good collection of kind of new resources on a more regular basis. And if you're a little more old school, feel free, and I hope you will feel encouraged to pick up The Local Economy Revolution Has Arrived, What's Changed and How You Can Help, which is available wherever you get your books, and particularly at lulu.com, gumroad.com, and Amazon. So let's go ahead and listen to this conversation with Camo and Let's use this as a bit of encouragement for us all to go get them. Thanks. All right. And we are live. Thanks again for joining us today. I'm Della Rucker. I am the principal of the Wise Economy Workshop and author of the new book, The Local Economy Revolution Has Arrived, What's Changed and How You Can Help. As some of you know, uh, I have done a series over the course of the last year or so called Accelerate Us, Dispatches from the Front Lines of the Local Economy Revolution. And this is one of the ways that I have been exploring as a means of getting some of the great ideas and the great insights that we don't normally 
come across in our everyday lives and and getting those into our our minds and our hearts and our experience so that we can apply those and really put those to work going forward. So I am beyond thrilled to have Camo Hakatera with me today because I've been working with Camo a good deal lately and he is extraordinary. What I wanted to talk about how we change our approach, particularly to entrepreneurship and small business development in black and other underrepresented communities. Camo not only has lived that experience, but he thinks about it and integrates ideas and and kind of kind of develops that holistic view in a way almost nobody else I've encountered has managed to do. And, you know, as a, you know, he's, he's a spring chicken. So he's also one that you're going to be hearing from a ton over the next many, many, many years. The, the piece that um, Camo and I have been working together on a bit is a new platform called Trep House. And I've been incredibly honored and have learned so much from being able to be an advisor to to trap house as it's getting off the ground so i'm super excited to be able to have this conversation today um and uh camo is is just someone i think you're just gonna adore um so camo why don't you start off with a little bit of introduction of yourself just just give a real high level view of kind of how you came into the world of entrepreneurship and um, kind of a, just a few of the things that you've you've been involved with in the past. Excellent, excellent. Yes, for sure. Thank you for having me, Della, and for the warm welcome. Um, as I always say, it takes one to know one. Uh, <laughs> so thank you so much um, for continuing to work with us at Trep House and believing in the vision and the mission. Um, my name is Kemal Akutera, as Della said. I am a serial entrepreneur. I'm from Dayton, Ohio, born and raised. Um, I've had a series of ventures throughout my life, um, e-commerce, IT uh, specialists, or IT te technical services. Um, we've also had a real estate investing, um, impactful real estate investing business, as well as uh, doing some, having brain parts between all the ventures, business credit consulting, um, some personal credit consulting or business credit consulting for disadvantaged communities. Um, and our goal in each one of our ventures has been to be impactful in the work we do um, to influence disadvantaged communities and stakeholders and do our best to bring about the change that we want to see in the world. Um, I got started in entrepreneurship personally at a very early age before I knew that that was a actual career choice um, up to that point. just seemed kind of like a magical thing. Uh, it was never really explained what it meant to be, you know, a founder, you know, to launch a venture. Um, however, I found um, in talking about some of my early childhood experiences with entrepreneurship, um, things have been revealed to me that uh, at the time weren't revealed before or weren't, you know, clear before. And one of those things was that entrepreneurship from a needs-based standpoint oftentimes isn't recognized as such. Um, it's called, you know, hustling or, you know, just kind of finessing. You know, we hear a lot of terms nowadays from the young people about, how to go about uh, generating revenue. And um, I was in the same lane, not completely on the illicit side, but I definitely uh, was talking to Della about the idea of selling mixtapes before anybody uh, in the world really had CD burners in their computers as like, you know, an everyday thing. You know, I was one of the first at my high school, I'm sure in my community with a CD burner. So I would actually burn CDs for people, let them select their songs, which, you know, I know now be piracy, but at the time I just knew that it allowed me to stand in the premium lunch line, unlike my peers um, who were able to just afford because of their parents' income, I was on, you know, a fixed income lunch. So I would use, you know, my mixtapes that I was making, you know, per request, sell, you know, a song, a dollar a song. And as a result, I was able to, you know, go in the premium lunch line. And so those were kind of my early um, experiences and forays into entrepreneurship. The fact that 
your your motivation for getting into entrepreneurship was to get the better lunch at school. I so I mean I was also on um, reduced cost lunch for a good portion of my my younger years, and I wish I'd been that smart because <laughs> that was a lot better food. So that's I mean that's that yeah I mean and and I think that you know we have this sort of image sometimes of entrepreneurs as being, excuse me, people who, you know, they get into it because, you know, of certain motivations that are easier to get into if you're, you're more upper class, like I'm going to be the next Steve Jobs, or I'm going to invent this fancy technology to do X, Y, or Z. But entrepreneurship, you know, for a lot of folks is a much more kind of rubber hits the road reality sort of experience. It is. So yeah, the 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 lunch the lunchroom tapes, the the CDs, I, I love that story. Um the so so before we get into kind of the meat of the discussion though, why don't you give people a high level view of Trep House? And I'll make sure that the link for Trep House is in the comments so that you know, folks can start checking out this new but very exciting initiative. Certainly, certainly. So Trep House is meant to be a venture development organization, um, also known as a super hub. Um, originally, it was going to be a physical place uh, on, from the outset with co-working, incubation, acceleration, all kind of embedded financing, access to resources for underrepresented founders, Etc. So on and so forth, and then the pandemic um, shifted uh, us, or actually inverted the plan because we did have a plan to eventually do um, virtual manifestations of Trep House that allowed would allow us to expand to other venues such as HBCUs or Job Corps, so on and so forth. Um, and then the pandemic happened, and you know it was like, okay, let's invert this plan. Let's go virtual first, at least get some traction, get some rubber to the road, not have to sit here on our hands for a year. Or, you know, however long, you know, we projected the pandemic to last and, you know, the uh, social distancing requirements being in place. And so it was like, okay, let's go vir virtual first and see what we can do with that. And then when things open back up, we'll explore going physical again at that time. And so we were able to launch a platform uh, September 2020. Um, it's still kind of hard remembering that we're in 2021. It's, last year was such a blur. But um, we were able to launch that platform. Um, we were able to... I uh, get Brad Feld of Techstars as an advisor, um, is also as a sponsor, he uh, granted us a $10,000 sponsorship um, and is also uh, working with us beyond that to just kind of help us dot I's and cross T's um, as it relates to the organization. Um, some other things that have happened, um, we have a couple of new interns that we brought on and the goal is for us to connect in many different stakeholders, you know, intergenerational, not just, you know, even though we are focused on millennials and Gen Z, we also want to be intentional about having, you know, Gen X and baby boomers involved in the conversation and making sure that they can provide all the experience, you know, the, uh, the plethora of, you know, resources, their network, so on and so forth, and bring that to the table to assist in this transition as we see us ourselves go from, you know, the baby boomers kind of having a helm to now, you know, seeing millennials kind of stepping up to the plate and Gen Z coming, you know, right along behind and and all the um, the shifts that are accompanying that. So we want to be intentional in being at the forefront and making sure that there's equity, um, there's parity and equal access to resources, exposure, uh, this new paradigm, what they call the fourth industrial revolution. Um, we want to make sure they're able to participate sufficiently. Beautiful. You know, that that fourth industrial revolution that you just mentioned, you know, that's something I've been writing and talking about a lot, which is kind of this this fundamental kind of shift that's underway right now. And I think you and I would both define that as having not just started in, um, you know, 2020 or, or 2012 or or sometime more recently, but that we're still in part of we're still in this process of transition that's a very a very deep transition akin to going from a medieval world to an industrial revolution world 
we're doing that now again. So hence the fourth industrial revolution. Sometimes um, folks who are familiar with my work, I call it the fusion economy. So basically the same thing. Um, I, but, but so one of the things that has been so illuminating and that I think is so powerful in the trap house model is the fact that you really had the vision and the understanding and really the empathy to say that what black and other underrepresented founders and small business owners need is not just about, we need more money. Everybody needs more money, but you're really the one who taught me about the other kinds of equity and how important they are to particularly disadvantaged founders and that, you know, money can help with, but that money doesn't necessarily replace. So I'm wondering, I don't want you to feel like you've got to like run through the whole, you know, the list of seven. Uh, I think it's seven that you usually cite. Um, like nine, but, but no, give or take. Yeah, something. Um, <laughs> But if you if you would, would talk a little bit about some of the other kind of non-financial capital that you see black and disadvantaged founders, um, you know, in your own personal experience, benefiting from. Certainly. Um, yes. So, you know, my the conclusion that I, you know, arrived at was that, you know, we are, in fact, searching for money to be able to pay for the other forms of capital. And, you know, we talk about financial capital being a medium of exchange and um, truly that is what it is. So if you look at the other A forms of capital outside of financial, the money is just there as a medium to make it easier to negotiate and get access to those other, form, other forms of capital. So for example, you know, uh, social capital, buying your way into a network um, that requires, you know, you have a certain net worth or, you know, you have, um, recommendations like Clubhouse, for example. Clubhouse, being able to join Clubhouse right now is a socially cap social capitalistically driven thing. So un unless you're able to know someone that has a Clubhouse membership, you aren't able to get on Clubhouse, you know, and some people are charging, you know, money for those who don't have the social capital to have somebody who's already on Clubhouse. Um, but if you just know the right person, you're able to get on Clubhouse. And I've heard of people selling Clubhouse memberships or invites for as much as a thousand dollars. So they're basically saying that the social capital that you normally have to have is equal to a thousand dollars. So if you pay me a thousand dollars, you can get on this app that's otherwise meant to be selective about who joins based off of who refers who. Um, and so in the same vein, you know, these other forms of capital really are what founders are after and are the drivers for any founders or any startup success. So, you know, you can't have, um, for example, a million dollars and the million dollars just sit in the bank account and that in and of itself is what brings you success. You have to intentionally take that million dollars and allocate it to these other forms of capital, intellectual capital, um, material capital, spiritual capital, cultural capital. Um, you can go on and on. There's, like I said, eight of them and I can pull them up on my phone. I have them in my favorites. But the whole point is that we're, we're seeking the cash to pay for these other forms of capital. So what if we're able to move forward and get access to those forms of capital without the money part being the medium in between and make those things, you know, manifest. Um, so it is my mission to show that, you know, these other forms of capital are actually as valuable or more valuable than the fiat currency. Because if you, you if you bring fiat currency into the equation and, you know, you find out that people are really only just involved from the motivation of getting the, cap, the cash. But, you know, when you work with others and they're able to bring their skills to the table, and those are as, as good as cash, same as cash. And you can uh, really find a way to kind of qualify and quantify that. It makes it easier to get the right stakeholders engaged without, you know, there being this um, this unspoken ickiness because it's like, well, what is my salary going to be right out the gate? You know, and can you pay me right now? You know, in, in a lot of other cultures, you see this heralding of like, you know, this gritty group of, you know, band of, sisters or brothers who are, you know, working together to launch this venture. Um, but in the black community, you know, you hear about self-made, you know, I did it all on my own. There was nobody there to support me. And so it's kind of like a, a considered a glorious thing to be able to, you know, 
come through the trenches and not have any help and any support. So everybody keeps kind of like, you know, regurgitating that same thing of like, you know, I'm self-made. When the fact of the matter is, whether you're, you know, an entertainer, whether you're an athlete, it doesn't matter what your role is. Somebody is watching, somebody's listening to, somebody's patronizing you in paying for your, you know, for your performance, you know, or whatever it is that they they appreciate, whatever value you bring. And so therefore there is truly no self-made. You know, somebody made sure that you had a meal, somebody made sure you had a roof on your over your head, you know, no matter how bad the situation was, somebody was there to get you to this point, the transition. And I just feel like a lot of times that's lost in translation because everybody's so quick to try to just go to the, you know, I have a lot of money and I'm self-made. It's like that's not success. That's fascinating. And it and it's fascinating that you framed it that way. It and it totally, totally makes sense. Um and that self-made mythology, you know, I we see it in a lot of different backgrounds in um in the particularly in the United States. Um and it's a little easier to make that claim and be able to get away with it when, you know, you you can conveniently ignore the fact that you received generational wealth from, you know, when grandma sold her house or or anything like that, which often isn't very often is is not an option for black and rep- underrepresented founders. Let's talk a little bit about, um, would you unpack the idea of culture, of cultural capitalism or cultural capital rather? Would you unpack that a little bit? Just that, that's a term that may be more unfamiliar to folks. And it's so unbelievably crucial yes. on what I've learned from you over the last years. Yes. Um, so cultural capital are the customs, the traditions, the rituals, um, the songs, you know, anything that's connected to, you know, your nationality, um, to your geographical or, you know, originations. Um, and it really is what kind of makes you who you are. Um, if you are devoid of cultural capital, you know, you don't have really any anchor to anyone. So, you know, you don't have really a history that you can point to. Um, you don't have um, access to the knowledge passed down through generations, you know, that has been gathered from a kind of like, how does the world work and who are we, you know, why are we here and how do we get here? Um, but deeper still, cultural capital in the black culture in America has become one that is rife with um, true capitalists. There's people who are capitalizing off of the cultural capital and our cultural capital is one that uh, I told somebody, somebody, I was in a, a therapy, it was like a young black professionals therapy group uh, thing that um, some groups, some folks are doing here in Dayton. And somebody asked like, what is black culture? And, you know, it was real quiet in the room. And this is maybe about two or three weeks ago. And I spoke up and I was like, I think black culture is beautiful pain. And everybody was kind of like, oh, that's deep. That's deep. You know, why do you say that? And I'm like, because I mean, think about everything that we do in the context in which we do it and how it's been received by the world outside. Um, rap is, you know, the easiest example, you know, it's like the, the go-to example. Um, rap in 2017 was the first genre to ever surpass rock music on the Billboard charts since Billboard had been keeping track since I think like the 40s or 50s. Um, there had never been a genre to ever surpass in, in topple rock music until 2017 when rap did that. Um, however, that being the case, how many black people do you know that are billionaires off of rap? You no, know, or millionaires even. I mean, you, can, you can't even name the billionaires off of rap, but obviously for it to surmount rock music, there has to be a litany of billionaires somewhere, but they're staying, you know, kind of hidden, hidden figures because, you know, if it kind of came out who the billionaires were of rap, it'd be like, you know, is this, who really owns this? And it's already a question, you know, it's already talked about behind closed doors and it's becoming a more public thing now. But the fact of the matter is, even beyond that fact, who owns it, it comes from a place of expressing in poetry the the, the horrors experienced in, you know, growing up in a black community, in a, you know, a, a low income black community. Um, Grandmaster Flash, you know, the Furious Five, you know, we can get to like the history of hip hop, but it all comes from a place of pain. Um, even DJing, for example, 
um, or scratching, like as we know, DJing the beat today, it mm -hmm. happened because I was watching a documentary about this that Ice-T did. And what they basically said that was that because they had taken, you know, music and art, the arts in general out of the schools in the 70s and 80s, you know, calling themselves trying to, you know, uh, balance the budget and find, you know, squeeze blood from the tournament and find more money where there wasn't they eliminated this. And so kids didn't have access to instruments anymore. They didn't have drums. They didn't have, you know, trumpets, et cetera. But these children, these black children in the ghetto thought to themselves, what if I take my mom's record player? And actually it was an accident. DJ Cool Herc was the first person to, you know, discover scratching or come up with it, but he had bumped into his mom's record player and the record skipped and it rewound it back to where it was. And he was like, I wonder if I could like, you know, kind of mimic that and kind of, you know, manipulate that to do that on rhythm. And so they actually started using a, a, a device that was meant to play pre-recorded instruments and turn that into an instrument itself because they didn't have instruments at their school anymore. So they weren't, you know, getting exposed to the ability to draw. They didn't get exposed to, you know, making music. They weren't able to dance. And so it was like, okay, we have the DJing, we have the rapping, you know, graffiti was the visual art form and break dancing was the physical art form. So these were all the arts that they removed from these 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 uh, low income public school systems, and these kids was like, you know, that's cool. I'll take a piece of cardboard and I'll roll around on it, and then it becomes, you know, it just got entered into the uh, Olympics. Breakdance is now officially a part of the Olympics, but it was oh, made in it. like you know New York on the gritty streets on top of cardboard boxes. So I'm just like this whole idea of our culture being like you know at, the, at when it whatever it is that first comes out is ridiculed but then eventually you know it's in the olympics or it's topping the billboard charts as the number one genre and it's like but there was a time people were crushing rap cds in the streets with shit steamrollers you know and, and refusing to let their kids break dance you know because for fear that they may be you know conjuring a demon or something so it's like it's profound to me to see how much like resistance but admiration there is for the cultural piece. But again, we as black people, you know, it just kind of pours out of us because it's coming from a place of pain and we need a, you know, an outlet. And so it yeah. trans, you know, translates into being a beautiful thing. But in order for, I feel like in order for this, this level of production to continue, the powers that be require us to remain in this state of, you know, powerlessness mm -hmm. and, you know, and trauma, because, you know, that's, unfortunately what produces the most beautiful works yeah yeah that's that's fabulous and and i completely i gotta watch that because i completely you know missed all of that part of the world living in my you know little town in in northern ohio um but it's a that's a fabulous tie-in to the next question i was going to ask which is there's a uniqueness to black entrepreneurship and black small business development. There, there's a uniqueness there that I haven't really put my my finger on at this point. Um, and again, I'm I'm an outside observer, but I'm I'm wondering, I'm wondering if if you what what strikes what um, what beauty what what power you uniquely perceive in black and low income community entrepreneurship? Absolutely. The number one um, that I think is the grit uh, you hear about in, you know, just general entrepreneurship, like the, the most defining characteristic is grit. Um, and you hear people trying to get grit, putting themselves through tough men contests or tough you know, uh, with Ironman contest or, you know, just doing different things to try to build up their ability, their ability to endure um, because entrepreneurship, that is in fact, what it is, is that, you know, everybody has to endure who can endure the longest, you know, in this industry and evolve and, you know, adapt And black culture as it stands, you know, in the world is one of a survivalist instinctual type of reality. And so everything hinges on, you know, your ability to endure and outlast whatever obstacles are in front of you. And you get to a point where it's almost like you're parkouring your way through life because that's what you have to do. It's so many obstacles. You just have to get extremely good at parkour. It's like, you know, I can't move the obstacles, but I can be creative about how I go around them and over them and under them, you know, and and that becomes your strength. And so um, I think that, you know, just that ingenuity required just to survive. 
there's a black person, whether it's, you know, doing a traffic stop, whether it's, you know, uh, doing a job interview, doing a job performance review. I mean, getting into school. I mean, if you can, I can go down the list of just experiences I've had where I've just had to in the moment be clever, more clever, or, you know, just think outside the box um, and really not be discouraged because I've seen so many disappointments, you know, you get to a point where it doesn't hurt anymore. It's just like, this is, it's, it becomes an inside joke, almost like this is part of being black. You know, this is what you expect being black. And so you almost take a pride in your ability to surmount these things because, you know, there's so many that aren't able to. Um, and the unfortunate thing is, you know, uh, Tupac, you know, describes it, and I'm sure he's not the first, but the roads that grew from the concrete. Um, so like, you know, looking at how flowers sometimes sprout up between the cracks of, you know, the concrete jungle. And that's kind of what you see in the black community is like, you know, just this barren, you know, uh, nutrient-less concrete wasteland. And every now and again, you get these flowers that pop up, but they never really get the nurturing that they, they deserve. You can just appreciate them in the moment coming through that crack, the, you know, the miracle of that. And then it's kind of like, I mean, I'm not about to replant this flower somewhere else or anything. It's just cool to kind of admire the fact that this rose grew from the concrete. And so I think that, you know, that grit piece, um, as well as making it look good, even in the worst of times. That's another skill is, you know, the faking it till you make it. Um, having, uh, I just had a founder who is um, running an entrepreneurial uh, support organization, similar to Trep House, you know, who's a white guy tell me like, you know, one thing that he did that kind of set him apart from others, maybe launching in that space is that he was like, you know, you have to look bigger than what you actually are. And that is, um, I mean, it even goes back to times in slavery when, when people um, didn't want their uh, their peers to know that their children hadn't eaten. And so they would put lard on their lips, even though there wasn't, you know, they hadn't actually eaten. It would look like and smell like they had food. And so I feel like a lot of that has translated over in like the, you know, the flexing culture where, you know, you act as if you have and you really don't. Um, and that goes back to like that lack of value for self and needing to be adorned by things or, you know, inside of vehicles and houses and on vacation, just all these things that add value to who you are because, you know, you aren't necessarily valuable enough as you stand. And so even though, again, it comes through from a place of pain, um, it becomes a lot of the, the trends that we see um, and being able to take what is considered a, a necessity and making it like something that people want. So literally making a dollar out of 15 cent or taking something from nothing um, or making something from nothing. I feel like that's something that black people have had to do so much that when they can make those connections between their reality, our reality and entrepreneurship, you know, it's like, oh, wow, this I'm already living an entrepreneurial lifestyle. Like the risk that I have to endure, you know, the, the way that I have to network, you know, and think my way through scenarios, like it's, it's really not any different. Um, this, the unfortunate thing is there's not a lot of exposure um, to that reality. And so a lot of black founders have no idea that they already possess a lot of the skills necessary to be entrepreneurs outside of the technical knowledge, of course, you know, they have the actual pieces personality wise, you know, just from a humanistic standpoint, they have the ability to endure, take on risk, you know, be creative, you know, be objective, but nobody's making those connections. And so there's, I can go down the list of like just parallels I've seen between, you know, growing up black and being an entrepreneur. Um, and the more the, for myself, the more aware that I got once I had that initial spark of understanding, it's like, oh man, like I, I had a lot of the things that others are trying to manufacture from growing up in the environment and the background that I did. Wow. The, so that's, that's incredible. And, you know, one of the things that I know you and I have talked about and that I've talked about in other spaces is this question of grit and resilience. And how do you teach that? Yes. And, you know, there's, there's a, you know, there's some discussion out in the world about how you, how, for example, students, if you look at college students, how can they learn grit and resilience? And it's very hard to figure out how to, to teach that. You know, that was a challenge that we had at Econogy because you just kind of got to put people in the situation and, um, you know, and help them learn and grow from whatever happens. Yes. But 
in a, a situation where your resources are more limited, um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a whole different equation. So here's a funky question for you. If I gave you a magic wand and I have no magic wand, because if I did, I would have used it already. And, you know, <laughs> Trep House would, uh, would have all the money it ever needed and all the connections it ever needed and more, although you've already got most of the connections. Um, <laughs> if, if you could do, if, and maybe it helps to look specifically at the, um, you know, the community in West Dayton, if you had a magic wand and you could make three things happen for that community that would, would help, this entrepreneurial spirit kind of grow into its potential. What would you use the magic wand on? The first would be adequate access to land, um, having land because everything on this planet, you know, whether we're wearing it, eating it, drinking it, sleeping on it, it all starts from the land. And so, having access to more uh, land um, and not just any land, but actual uh, land that is nutrient rich or has the capacity to be nutrient rich that, you know, we could grow on because of the food desert situation. Um, in addition to having structures, uh, buildings that we own and operate and can use, you know, to further build our community. Um, it would be land is the first thing Second thing would be the spirit of retention. Um, there's a lot of people who have a lot of talent in Dayton. Dayton, that, that grit-based reality, I feel like it it forces so many to rise to the occasion in their careers and their journeys in life. Um, but a lot of them, you know, feel like they have to leave. And so a, a way to encourage this spirit of like wanting to stay in Dayton and make happen here what you think you have to make happen by going somewhere else. Uh, and the third thing would be, what would be the third thing? Maybe some other yeah. industries besides just ed, med, or fed, um, kind of opening up the market and getting more visibility for, you know, whether it's mom and pops, whether it's tech enable, whether it's non-tech, but just getting the same respect um, for founders of all types, um, not really preventing or stifling innovation because it's not tech and you don't see it scaling and becoming, you know, a Fortune 500 company to be able to, you know, say, hey, this is in my city and we, we have this here. So really access to all um, and, and the openness from the powers that be um, to founders from all backgrounds, all walks of life all wow. educational levels, all social, socioeconomic, you know, backgrounds, et cetera. That's real. That last one is particularly fascinating to me because, you know, you use the phrase that we use in a lot of Midwestern cities, which is eds, meds, and feds. It's feds. You add feds for Dayton because there's yes. a very strong um, Air Force presence. Um, but eds and meds or eds, meds, and feds, I mean, those are, those come out of of what we've done in economic development for a long time, you know, the formal economic development, which is that for years and years and years and years, we were told to target. We got to target our resources. We have to focus on our clusters. We need, to, you know, and, and it was a very, it was trying to be a very strategic point of view. And it was very much, there was a lot of trying to pick winners yes. in that space. And yeah. I think, you know, we, we, and I critique economic development a lot over this, that we don't do a good job of like stepping back and evaluating mm -hmm. how, like, did the thing that we did 10 years ago actually work or not? Mm. But what you're saying in this context is that that targeting isn't helpful. Right. That, that there's a need to build entrepreneurship and small businesses of all kinds. Can you talk a little more about that? 
Yes, absolutely. I feel like, you know, that, like you said, there's this idea of trying to pick winners and, you know, people are begging Amazon to come to their city. You know, when that was a whole thing, people were like, oh, please, please, please come here. And it's like, what if we took those same resources and that same, um, that same fervency and, you know, we're willing to put it towards just building up our, our, our community, our city to one that could hopefully spit out the next Amazon, you know, instead of chasing this well of an organization, you know, and hoping that it saves their city. It's like, what about helping those people that, you know, are Jeff Bezos in 1994, 96, whenever he kicked off Amazon, you know, and stand with them through the test of time and have them stay in your city and have that story be told. But instead, there's this idea of wanting a quick fix. Um, everybody's in like this lottery or this microwave, you know, mindset. You know, if we just get more money, you know, if we could just have this happen instantly, then it would solve all these problems. When, you know, it's so deeply embedded in the culture, why, you know, you've gotten to the point that you have, you know, it's, it's profound because they act as if, you know, they've gotten to this point by just sheer chance, like not any actions of their own that, you know, have brought them to this point. When the reality of the matter is, is that, you know, every action that has been taken by the powers that be puts them in that position. You know, they don't, I feel like they don't take responsibility for, like you said, there's no review of the economic development side, well, just in general, there's never really any accountability for the general direction of a city or, you know, a region or the country at large, you know, mm -hmm. it's just kind of like, well, everybody's pointing fingers instead of saying like, you know, who does this actually hurt? Cause the people who are visible enough to point fingers aren't the ones that are most effective in most cases. They're the ones that are just put there to be, you know, kind of the gatekeepers and the, um, what do you call them? The, uh, uh, the figureheads. Yeah. They're the figureheads rep put there to represent the powers that be that are actually controlling this narrative. And so it's so, for me, it's, it's a hard reality to maneuver through because this is all social engineering. Like, you know, the, yeah. the value of the currency, the state of the country, like there's somebody behind the scenes that is helping to orchestrate this and make it play out the way it does. And so it's like, you know, what does it take to shift those thoughts and those minds to one of like, you know, this rising tide is going to raise all ships. I think now we're in a place where it before it was like, you know, it was a philanthropic thing to help disadvantaged communities and encourage entrepreneurship. And it's like, oh yeah, it's cute. They can, you know, maybe have an employer or two, et cetera. But now Morgan Stanley is like, this is a $4.4 trillion opportunity for any VCs that want to remove their bias and invest in women or minority founders to the same degree that they do white men. And so there's a lot of information coming out, you know, statistically driven that, you know, data that's soundly saying, if we help these founders, if we help these organizations, then everybody wins, not just these founders. And it doesn't have to be a charitable thing. Um, so I'm, I'm like, I think we have to shift that mindset of like, you know, continue to push and get people out of this thought of like, you know, you supporting other founders outside of white men doesn't mean that you know you should be trying to expect them to be fortune 500 companies but you very well should too it's like you shouldn't have like any really ulterior motive besides just wanting to help people improve their lives and realize their their full potential um but i think because everybody's focused on like how can we get to this bottom line and how can we show that you know we had the most growth year over year you know it's just like this constantly driven Let's just mm -hmm. look good, you know, put the lard mm -hmm. on the lips as a, you know, a community and make it look like we did something without actually doing anything. That's a, that's a crucial observation. The, um, the other thing that I think is an incredible opportunity here is that if you're not only focused on the small businesses that have what we call scalability, the ability the potential at least to um, become the next Amazon or the next Google or whatever. And I've heard a lot of um, community leaders say that that's why they're doing entrepreneurship. But <laughs> if you're, if you're enabling entrepreneurship as a whole, particularly in disadvantaged communities, you know, there's a lot of evidence that we're building wealth, we're building stability, we're building, um, we're building a lot of the things that aren't just nice to haves, but they're needs to haves yeah. in those in particularly for those communities, because the trying to, to either pump in from outside or giving little dribs and drabs, 
that's not working at all. Right. Um, so that ability to really to create an ecosystem of small businesses. The other, the other important piece of that is that that's more resilient. You know, I came out of a community um, up in Cleveland in the seventies that was very reliant on a small number of big, big, big businesses. Mm -hmm. And when they fail, as they all did in, you know, the early 1980s, it's ugly. And it's ugly for everybody, but it's worst for the communities that have gotten left out. Yes. And that's part of why, you know, the the entrepreneurial component becomes so important. Um, We're seeing more youth now. I'm seeing more youth who oh. are, vert, are expressing themselves, like voluntarily expressing the interest in entrepreneurship. Oh. Um, the unfortunate thing is, like, I was on a call with um, uh, Dayton Leadership Academy. They had me, you know, on there to mentor some of the young men um, for the Office of Males of Color. And, you know, I was asking, they asked me to speak about entrepreneurship and financial literacy and such. And so I was, you know, asking, like, what do you, can anybody tell me, like, what they want to be and why they want to be that, you know, when they grow up? And these were kids all the way from, like, elementary school. It was all young, uh, young black boys but from elementary school all the way up through high school. And every single young man that got that, you know, unmuted and spoke up on this Zoom call, you know, said that he either wanted to be a rapper or a basketball player. Mm. But every single one of them ended that sentence with, so I can do blank for my community. So some kids were like, you know, I want to be able to create, you know, senior housing because I have an older grandmother who, you know, we really can't afford to take care of. And so I want to be able to provide something for seniors, you know, or I want to become a rapper so I can, you know, create a community center in my my community so kids have something positive to do instead of just, you know, getting in trouble. Or, you know, I want to become, a, you know, a, 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 an actor or, you know, get on TV or, you know, anything to do with what they perceive is the only way to get access to those kind of resources so they can help give back. Every single one of them, not a single one of them said that they wanted to do this thing to make all this money and not put it back in their community. And it was wow. just really profound to me where it's like, you know, the people that the the ambassadors on the call were kind of like you know after the fact kind of critiquing like you know oh well these kids want to be this and how do we get this out of their thoughts and i'm like well let's hold on let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. these young men are only speaking to the examples they've seen yeah. when you think about like you know entrepreneurship impactful entrepreneurship in the black community that's like you know had like a a high visibility and you know a, a huge impact you know of course, to scale within reason has been like, you know, basketball players, rappers, you know, actors, um, football players, you know, athletes and entertainers. Mm -hmm. um, so these young men are like, the only thing I can see myself doing to have the impact that I want to have is going this route first so I can make the money and redirect it back. Mm -hmm. And so it's just really this, the profundity of that. Like I, they know it's entrepreneurship, but it's like, I can't become an entrepreneur selling widgets and make a billion dollars. Right. I have to do it through playing sports or, you know, speed into a microphone. And I'm like, there's no other examples. And so that's what they think. That's what they think the only option is. That's the only exposure that they have to see an impact entrepreneurship in the black community to a large scale. That's fascinating. And I forgot to, to flip the camera off so that it was focused on you. Um, but so my face probably showed that I was like, oh my God, this is awesome. Um, the, the, the amazing thing with that story, and I, I, I think I've said this to you before, but you know what the biggest uh, precondition, the biggest predictor of whether a person will go an entrepreneurial route is or not? Do you, do you remember? It's, I think it's if you have somebody in your family, somebody nearby. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. So, if you don't have that model in your immediate universe, or you don't have that model in a way that's, you know, kind of getting to the level of being able to make that impact, yes. that's the examples that they've got to go with. Exactly. So yeah, it's, that's, wow, that's extraordinary. That's very that cool. Very cool. Is there anything else that you want to tell the folks who are watching this now or who will be watching it? Um, when we post the video, 
Yes, absolutely. One of the things I've been thinking about is, you know, even if you aren't an entrepreneur, you don't want to take on that, you know, that lifestyle because it is, is a lot, you know, and it's, I mean, especially being black on top of being black and being an entrepreneur, it's a lot. So I can understand people saying like, oh, I don't want to really be an entrepreneur. That's not really my lane. But if you are worried about job creation, if you are worried about economic and community development, you have to support entrepreneurs who are focused on giving back to their communities, staying, you know, as anchors in their community or, or pillars, um, you know, solid foundations. Um, so really getting behind founders in the form of like, you know, family and friends investing, um, helping. It doesn't necessarily even have to be a cash thing. It can be uh, expertise. So if you have expertise and you are skilled at, you know, let's say marketing or, you know, you're a writer or whatever your skill set is, figuring out ways to support the entrepreneurs in your community because they're the ones that bring about the changes, you know, the unique solutions to the problems that have plagued us since a time immemorial. Um, we have to be very intentional as non-founders, I think, um, in supporting founders because they are the reason that there are jobs to work. Um, you, you can't have jobs and there's not somebody who launched that venture. The government isn't going to do it has to be an individual and if you want to see you know people from your community hired then you know support the founders in your community who are staying there and you know intentionally entrenching themselves in the challenges of you know raising that tide for all ships wow that's excellent i have one more question for you and this ties into um something that's going to be coming up with uh, wise economy and accelerate us uh, later, probably in April. I am wondering from your perspective, what an inclusive place looks like. So a place where not only you, but that you think people from a variety of other backgrounds will feel welcome. And you don't have to give me an example, but but what are the indicators to you that a place is inclusive? Um, it is representative of the enormity of potential variations of creation. Um, it reflects sensitivity to other cultures um, and even like an, a curiosity um, an admiration of other cultures, you know, not feeling like other cultures are a threat to their existence, um, really creating the means to support um, others to thrive and not expecting it to somehow immediately or directly benefit you as the gatekeeper or the holder of those resources. Um, really just making people feel like they can be somewhere and as long as they're, you know, not working to hurt anybody, you know, not trying to take anything away from anybody, they can be their full authentic selves. Um, anytime you're in a place where, you know, you feel like you have to diminish who you are um, outside, again, of reason, like reasonable, uh, loving human behavior, you know, that's not a very inclusive place. Um, nobody should ever have to really diminish who they are um, and feel a lack as a result of that. Um, but I think that, you know, if we do more to to listen and consider how others got to the point that they have, what brought them uh, about this reality, whatever they're trying to bring to the market, you know, whatever they how they want to affect the world, um, we have to be intentional in not thinking that we know the best way, but giving them the platform, even, even if let's say we know for whatever reason, like we like we know this is going to fail but this person is on this journey that they need to go through this failure to bring them to the other side, to get to like, mm -hmm. you know, their ultimate solution. I think we have to just be intentional about people taking their path and their, you know, in, on their walk, not trying to rush them or, you know, divert them on another path, but understand that their journey is unique to them and is going to bring about, you know, their own evolution. And so not being, uh, critical about how fast the seed sprouts and produces, you know, fruit, but just being in it for like a line that, that plant to exist, whatever comes from it, because eventually, even if it doesn't work out, it's going to be returned back to the soil and recycled into the system. 
And I think that, you know, humanity is the same way. Man, that's, uh, wow. <laughs> you, you, you use metaphors and I've, I've known this before. You use metaphors so beautifully, but it's like, what else is there to say? So Camo, thanks a ton for taking the time to do this with me today. And I'm sorry I glitched at the at the beginning. It was the, no, it's the, so good. It's all, it gave me enough time to make sure, you know, I was all ready because I oh I knew we had an interview, but then I forgot for a second. I had in my calendar that I had a call with you. And then you called me. I was like, oh yeah, it was an interview, not an actual call. So I need to be ready for that. <laughs> and you have a lot of calls with me these days. So uh yeah, it's 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 all part of the system. So if people are interested in learning more about Trap House, where would you suggest that they look? Um, you can go to www.trep.house. And, you know, I know this probably should have happened at the beginning, but a lot of people ask me, like, what does Trap House mean? Um, and that is connected to, I mean, everything we talked about on this interview is, you know, it's all a part of that name. Um, it's meant to be a play on words for Trap House, which is typically a place where, you know, illicit activity takes place, whether, you know, it's drug, you know, manufacturing, drug selling, you know, other types of crimes. But entrepreneur, back in the 90s, late 90s, early 2000s, um, if you were an entrepreneur, people just didn't, you know, I guess people didn't want to say the word or they couldn't spell it. So they would say you're a trap um, or you're trapping. And so my goal was to take the trap house model and take all the positive traits, because just like a battery, we can talk about the negative pole all day or the negative end of the battery but that means there has to be a positive end and so what's the positive end of the the beautiful pain that is black culture um and there is that grit you know there's that um the that tight-knit group when you know you're just you're the only ones that really have each other's back i mean there's so many different positive uh traits that i could bring up that come from the street you know and you know the crime world uh, and i want to take that because that's what a lot of people mistakenly, you know, hold in high regard without separating, you know, from the the BS. And so I'm like, you know, how do we really show the positives, you know, that is allowed rap to become the number one genre in the world, you know, and so many people to feel like it speaks their, you know, their their thoughts and their hearts. Um, how can we take that kind of cultural capital and flip it, you know, uh, exchange it for uh cultural capital that is more to our benefit overall um so trap house is literally a play on trap house it's basically entrepreneur house meant to like you know really foster all those positive aspects of that part of our culture well said well said so it's t-r-e-p dot h-o-u-s-e and uh so there's a website with that title um, you can find camo very easily on LinkedIn. They ain't too many camos, you know, so uh, so he'll come up nice and easy there. Um, you can also follow Trep House on Facebook and on Instagram. Anywhere yes. else that I'm forgetting? Uh, not sure. Very much. It's kind of and the two. It is, on, it is on LinkedIn. I have a separate, you know, Trep House page on LinkedIn as well. I need to get a little more active on there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks again. You, you, uh, I can, I could talk to you about anything and it's always just mind blowing for me. Um, uh, and we're going to, we'll talk later today, like our usual schedule. So, you know, then I get to, uh, ask you all those questions about, so did you get this done yet? Um, where are we with this thing? How does that, are, are we going to be able to get that done? You know, all the all the it's it's necessary. Yes, mother slash nag slash advisor. So you know, we gotta do what we can do. So thanks for this. Thank you for the you know awesome um adventure that you've been really privileging me to be part of with you. And it's it's gonna be a good damn year. Yes, it is. Thank you for joining me. And I'm, you know, I couldn't think of somebody, anybody else better to be along this journey. So well, I'm excited. 2021. You got it. And as you always say, peace. Peace. <laughs> <laughs> you say it cooler than I do. But yeah. <laughs> All righty. Later. Later.
Thank you. Go get them. Bye.